it's really great when the games sort of sync up where the the plays are happening <laughs> sort of one after another. So you can get like two or three plays in between snaps and one other game. So doesn't always work out that way, but um while looking at games, I rely very heavily on on screen graphics for time and score. And when you don't have those, that makes it difficult for sure. It does. It does make it difficult. But I I do I've come to find the broadcast that I know where that information is accurate. <laughs> and so I do like it when those games pop up on my viewing grid and I know I don't have to keep extra tabs open for live stats on those games. I can trust the trust the time and score. But it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes sometimes the score is a little late getting in on screen. Sometimes the time doesn't update. Some, sometimes the time just keeps rolling. Sometimes the quarter isn't correct. Sometimes on live stats, it says fourth quarter, zero, 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 even though it's actually about to be fourth quarter, 15, zero, zero. Yeah, that is one that I have learned over the last several weeks happens. You sort of you sort of know where a game ought to be. And when the quarter change seems wrong, it usually is. For some reason, the sequence of events in that particular statting program yes. We'll make it look for a half minute like you're at the end of the quarter you're about to start. Yeah, we have to teach that to the rest of the scoreboard crew for sure. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 years, and we've had a podcast for it since 2007. That's this, the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com. We are here every week all season because we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at d3football.com. And Pat, we are running the gauntlet of podcasts here in the regular season. We're at week six. We're about halfway through, a little over halfway through the regular season now. And wow, week six, a lot of great action. Uh, exactly where you expect it to be. We are allowed to call it a gauntlet on this show for sure. Podcast 337, season 17, episode 11. We are going to talk about week six, an amazing week of Division Three football. And Greg, man, it just seems like Division Three football is at its best when the WIAC is playing its conference games on a Saturday afternoon. It really is. And I really like it when we get just a pack of great WIAC games the week after we rank the WIAC, the number <laughs> one conference in around the nation. Uh, really validating that. If you had any, any questions about whether or not WIAC is the best conference in Division Three. All you had to do was watch on Saturday afternoon. And if you have any questions about why the WIAC is the best conference in Division Three, Greg is the guy to ask, and Keith McMillan before him. Every year that we've done a conference ranking since 2003, that has been the result. The WIAC number one. Also coming up on this show, our Fast Five interview. Fast Five will be with Chuck Goldstein. He's the head coach at Gallaudet University with their Fast 5G headset that was their helmet in play on Saturday for that game against Hilbert. Maybe you saw it on Good Morning America, for goodness sake. Maybe you read about it in USA Today or the Washington Post or all sorts of really big news outlets, or maybe you saw it on D3Football.com as well. We'll talk with him about that. And, of course, we'll talk about the big games from Saturday. We'll go through our top notes in each region we'll hand out our game balls we'll do stats of the week all of that coming up in just a moment before we get any further into our podcast we have to thank and recognize our sponsor for this edition of the podcast and that is d3photography.com we've talked about d3photography.com over the course of the past several podcasts they've got photographers out there all across the country covering these big games covering games that we're going to talk about in just a moment, Greg. How about UW-Whitewater against UW-Lacrosse? Bridgewater against Shenandoah. UW-Stout versus UW-Oshkosh. Alvernia versus Delaware Valley. Carlton 
against St. Olaf and Randolph Macon versus Averett. That's right, Pat. The crew at D3Photography.com, they're out there each and every Saturday getting professional images of games around Division Three football. I hope our listeners have seen some of that great work featured on D3Football.com from this weekend. I know we have a great image from Whitewater Lacrosse on the front page, another one from St. Olaf versus Carlton. Pat, there are 459 images from St. Olaf Carlton. You can see the goat. Yep. You can see the eagle. You can see the goat and the eagle in the same picture. There's a lot of zoology happening with that game. I digress. <laughs> if you're a fan or alum or parent or a student athlete and you're looking for high quality professional stills from these memorable events, you can get some at d3photography.com. As an added bonus, Pat, listeners to our podcast can get 10% off of their order at d3photography.com by using the promo code D3Football when they check out. How great is that? It's 90% great, and you can do that at d3photography.com. Thanks to d3photography.com for sponsoring the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast. Doug Sassy of d3photography.com was at that game on Saturday. 20,113 fans were at this game on Saturday. We were talking at the beginning of the podcast about switching back and forth from screen to screen, right? And for me, one of the things is it's just really difficult to focus on the audio of multiple screens. So sometimes a screen might get muted while something else is going on. I go back to the big TV to unmute Whitewater Lacrosse just in time to hear the Whitewater Broadcast crew talk about 20,113. And I did have the file open already expecting that there would be an attendance mark to be added to the list. The most attended D3 football game on a campus site in the history of Division Three football, as far as we know, and we have compiled all of the attendance records we can get our hands on. What a great day for a football game. What a great showcase for Division Three football in front of all of those people on Saturday. Yeah, Pat. Lacrosse has been close to knocking off Whitewater in each of the last two seasons. And on Saturday, in front of over 20,000 fans at Perkins Stadium, they finally did it, winning 37-34 to on a walk-off 51-yard field goal by Michael Stack. Pat, we saw some new wrinkles from the lacrosse offense, but the Eagles' defense did a lot right here as well. They forced three Warhawk fumbles. The first, and maybe most important, came on the Warhawks' opening drive after a strong kick return. The Warhawks pounded the rock quickly down to the red zone where Tamir Thomas appeared to be going into the end zone to give Whitewater a quick lead. However, lacrosse forces Tamir Thomas to fumble at the one-yard line. The Eagles recover. They end that scoring threat five plays later. Zach Weir finds Jack Studer up the sidelines for an 84-yard touchdown and a lead that lacrosse would never relinquish. That's right. Whitewater came back to tie it very late in the game with 5.53 left. Frankly, you could have been excused for writing Whitewater off. Uh, lacrosse took a lead from 24 to 20 up to 34 to 20 in the course of a little bit over six and a half minutes of game time. Kaiser Helterbrand uh, gets his team up to 34, 20. So he lined up in the backfield a little bit on Saturday, maybe more than a little bit, took a handoff and, you know, from Zach Weir still is a guy who is a quarterback and found Wyatt Lemoyne open in the end zone for a touchdown first play of the fourth quarter. And then, you know, Whitewater got back into it. They had a 44-yard drive that was a touchdown, and then a play that was not quite a broken play, but Elijah Maher-Par just wide open. If you think two steps on a linebacker is wide open, I guess that's what I'm considering wide open, and that's what happens when you have a running back coming out of the backfield, right? He's not getting picked up by someone in the secondary. He's getting picked up by a linebacker. Yeah, I think it was interesting to watch how lacrosse used kaiser hiltebrand throughout the game pat he left the game on i think the third or fourth play of the game i think the third play i think he ran up the middle and went off shaking his wrist looked like he might have been hurt and that's when zach weir hit jack studer for the 84 yard touchdown up front and then throughout the rest of the game you see lacrosse using kaiser hiltebrand lined up at quarterback lined up at running back doing a lot of different things with two quarterbacks in the game at the same time uh, some new wrinkles that maybe, you know, it, it feels like one of those things that they had these things stored up, ready to deploy for Whitewater specifically. You would certainly think so. That's a good time to bust those out in front of uh, 20,000 plus fans on a Saturday against a team that you haven't beaten since 2004. So the last time that 
lacrosse beat Whitewater was before any of those Whitewater runs to the Stag Bowl. Whitewater's first run to the Stag Bowl, frankly, Greg, probably fueled by an epic come-from-behind win against UW Lacrosse in 2005. In 2005, Lacrosse was the team to beat. They really were, and sort of goes to show the depth of the conference that for a while Lacrosse was the team to beat. Whitewater is the team to beat. Oshkosh has been in the Stag Bowl in not in the not too distant past and now River Falls is the highest ranked team in the YAC. So um a lot of great teams and great parity at the top of the YAC. We'll talk more about that coming up in a little bit. Also the game that uh, started and almost fully ended before this started was a key game in the Liberty League, one of the multiple games in the Liberty League between the top 4 teams that we have all kind of expected to contend. And those are Ithaca and RPI and Union and Hobart. It was Ithaca and RPI on a Saturday. And Ithaca had not had a whole lot of success at RPI in the past. They have not. And in fact, uh, in Troy, Ithaca has never won as a member of the Liberty League. They have won there in the way, way back. Um, but interesting. this is an interesting series where these two teams in upstate New York and conference rivals more recently conference rivals, they don't have a whole lot of football history between them. It's an interesting, interesting thing where you expect these two teams to have this long and storied uh, sort of Northeast ish longstanding rivalry, but they really don't. But here on Saturday in Troy, Ithaca, they knock off the previously undefeated RPI engineers, 20 to 17 in overtime. This game played out in a typical Ithaca RPI fashion. There's a lot of stingy defense, a lot of punts, a key drive or two sprinkled throughout. Ithaca's defense did a great job in this one. They forced three turnovers, and it could have been worse for RPI. The engineers put the ball on the turf four times in this game, but they only lost one of those fumbles. The key sequence in overtime came with RPI having quickly moved up to the Ithaca five-yard line before RPI rushes for a loss of three yards on first down. They have an incomplete pass on second down. Jay Kazanowski gets chased backward for a 16-yard sack on yeah, third down. Good. Then you have a delay a game where it seems RPI may have been a little shell-shocked having gone from an easy chip shot field goal to a position on the field where kicking isn't always automatic. When the dust settles, RPI tries a 46-yard field goal, which gets blocked. Ithaca did not uh, make it easy on themselves on the other side of overtime. The Bombers lost a yard. They threw an incomplete pass, but then they got a big nine-yard gain from Jalen Leonard Osborne, which set up a 34-yard game winner for Derek Balden. A.J. Wingfield, the quarterback for Ithaca, chatted with Frank Rossi of In the Huddle afterwards, and here's a little bit of that conversation. Yeah, they're, they're incredible, and their defense, and, I mean, it's just, it's so hard to play them. I mean, you could, you could go around the Liberty League, I've, no one likes playing them. They're, they're brutal here, obviously. We haven't beat them here. Their defense flies around better than anybody. They hit harder than anybody. Um, so just to, you know, come in here with the chip on our shoulder and, um, I'm so happy for our guys. We played we play so hard. Uh, we hit them, and um, you know, it's just a great win. Let's get out of here. I'm so happy. And then, Greg, we were treated to a bit of a bonus exciting game, a game that we would not have expected it to be so, as Harden-Simmons has to go to overtime against McMurray. Harden-Simmons and McMurray, crosstown rivals in Abilene, Texas, and Harden-Simmons has had its way with McMurray for almost the entire time that that has been a rivalry at the division three level, having won 33 out of the 37 meetings and the last nine in a row. Yeah. And for the third week in a row, Harden Simmons found itself in a spot of difficulty late in the game. This time at McMurray where the Cowboys uh, survive a major upset bid with a 19 to 16 overtime win Trailing 13-7 to late in the third quarter, McMurray tied the score with a 58-yard touchdown catch by Christopher Martin. But HSU's Braden Hargrove may have saved Harden-Simmons' season by blocking the extra point to prevent McMurray from taking a lead. Harden-Simmons had a field goal attempt at the end of regulation to win, but that attempt was blocked. In the overtime period, McMurray was held to a 36-yard field goal, and it appeared that McMurray had Harden-Simmons stopped to a field goal in the second half of the overtime. However, McMurray was called for leaping and the penalty restarted the drive and Harden Simmons was in the end zone three plays later to give them the 19 to 16 win and retain the Wilford Moore trophy, Pat. 
while Harden Simmons has been able to grind out two ASC wins in the last two weeks, they look very, very different from the team that rose to number five. And this result is particularly interesting given Mary Harden Baylor's 50 to nine win over McMurray just one week before. Leaping. Leaping is the act of either coming straight over the center on a kick play or using a, you're trying to vault yourself using a teammate's body to get extra lift to try to block a to try to block a kick. Yes, and in this case it looked more like the former. It looked like the McMurray player jumped over the the center or around the center and that was that was the call. 10 yards and a first down for Harden Simmons. I know we have been all Warhawks or Warhawks here in the first uh, 15 minutes or so of this podcast, but uh, keeping an eye on Harden Simmons as they continue to struggle, right? They, you know, continue to not have their first string quarterback and people are counting now. Will they be able to have him in place by the time that this game against Mary Harden Baylor comes up on October 28th? I expect that's an answer that you can't provide me and nobody else can provide us except for us to continue to watch over the next three weeks. Yeah, we'll have to watch and see, but it seems pretty clear that Harden Simmons needs to be healthy if they're going to be ready to go on October 28th. When healthy, Harden Simmons is good enough to win in Wisconsin lacrosse. And when they are not healthy, they're really having to grind to get wins against Howard Payne and McMurray. See you all met. You all met. You all met. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, it's time for Fast Five, and I'm joined by Coach Chuck Goldstein of Gallaudet University. His team victorious on Saturday, of course, but most importantly, debuting this brand new 5G football helmet from AT&T. Coach, first off, congratulations, and I really thank you for joining us also on video. Oh, thanks for having me, Pat. So tell us about the whole process of this. I first heard about this maybe about a year ago. So I assume that it had to have been in process even longer than that. We've been working with AT&T for the last 21 months, um, just trying to make everything work out. And they contacted us, asked us, they asked us, if we were interested in a, you know, collaboration. And finally on you know yesterday's game, it was amazing. It was awesome. Totally awesome. Right. So you have to get the permission from an opponent to be able to use this, right? Yeah. I mean, a really big, you know, thank you to Hilbert, you know, giving us the opportunity to use this in game. You know, the NCAA waiver requires, you know, approval from the team you're playing against. And they were excited about it as much as we were. They were part of this and they're part of history. So we really appreciate uh, Tim, their athletic director, Ted, the head coach, they really were awesome through the process with everything. I will just give an alert to our listeners. Fast five will run a little bit long and a little bit less fast today because I feel like there's a lot to talk about. Are there more opponents who you have approached about using it this season? No, this year was a one-time NCAA waiver. Um, and again, it was important. It was it's a learning experience. Um, we need to report back to the NCA, give them feedback of everything that was positive, things maybe that didn't work work well. Um, but again, this is just a first step. And that's all we asked for was an opportunity to help us maybe bridge the gap uh, for like a level playing field. And that 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 was the most important. So we're going to take it from here and see what happens in the future. I know it's difficult to communicate with players at Gallaudet when they're on the field, on the floor. I think, you know, people remember, people know I talk about having been at Catholic University as an undergrad, as sports information director. I actually was SID at Gallaudet for a whole like three months on an interim basis forever ago. And, you know, the way that you people try to get, uh, you know, attention to the student athletes, like if you're in basketball, you can maybe stomp on the floor. Right. And they can feel the vibrations and that sort of thing. The football field is much bigger and not nearly as resonant in that regard. Now it, it's tough because, you know, it's not a level playing field. Sometimes we can't communicate with our players when we need ASL is very visual. Um, if someone's not looking at you, then they're not going to know what you're saying. That's a hundred percent. And we've been stuck in, in the past with play calls, you know, missing the end of a play call or a quarterback, you know, I can't get his attention. You know, you see yeah. me, on a sideline and I'm going crazy. I'm screaming, I'm jumping. And there's just no reaction. 
Um, you know, so that, that's tough. So that part of creation, but where a play like play calls normally, it's smooth. We can we communicate in our language, which is not a problem. But it's it becomes a problem when we get inside the twenty, you know, because coaches are stuck on the twenty. Yeah. And if we're if the ball's on the two, sometimes that's a good distance to see a clear, you know, ASL communication. Um, and you know, again, it just other hearing teams can just shout out and get someone's attention but you know we're stuck with that how did the technology work for you on saturday how well did it go it it, it was really smooth um i was a little nervous you know ahead of time because the weather we had rain in the first yeah. you know, quarter and we've not practiced with the technology in the weather and the rain but um i had a towel with me the whole time and i had to kind of you know went through one of the things i would change for for myself would be maybe having like a pen, like my hands were moist and I, it was normally just, a, it was a touch, mm-hmm. um, you know, but after that, after we kind of settled down, it was really good. Like we have on the, on the tech part with the tablet is like a red kind of like exclamation point. And it's like the emergency button. Okay. So I, three times I used it to, to get our quarterback's attention and he looked right at me. Now, one time it was a mistake. I was trying to clear the play like <laughs> so it's like a button i send it and it goes to the quarterback and then it'll disappear in 15 seconds but i was trying to make it go away before the 15 seconds and i hit the wrong button and he looked at me again i was like no 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 no, just run the play run the play <laughs> you know and we, we we laughed like we laughed about it it was it was funny um but it it, it wasn't a distraction i really thought our players were like distraction we practice with it for the you know this week like full time and it never became a distraction you Good. know and which was great which which helped a lot so brandon washington's your signal caller right is there also someone on defense who takes calls from the sidelines with this technology now no for this first for this first year for this first time we decided because of the technology we only had three helmets and you know we only have 70 players on the team yeah and not a lot of depth. And when we started the process, you know, we never knew if we were going to have an injury or not. So we decided just to keep it on offense and keep it with the three quarterbacks. All right. So tell us about Brandon Washington, right? He's a guy who's pretty electric for you at that position, especially with the offense you guys run. Yeah. Uh, he's special. He's very special. He's hard of hearing. He's not deaf. So he can hear a little bit. Um, so, you know, communicating with him, you know, he, he talks, um, you know, we have our freshman quarterback, Trevin Adams is he's fully deaf from Riverside, California. Mm-hmm. And so it's two different, you know, access to communication, but Brandon is very special. He is talented. Again, we don't throw a lot. We, we try to, to run the ball, but, um, you know, he makes plays, he makes plays for us. And, We've been struggling this year, you know, starting 0-4, we've had so many injuries, like Brandon had a, a serious AC sprain, mm. and, you know, we had to move him from quarterback, put him at wide receiver a little bit, which, you know, he, he people know where he is on the field at all times because he's going to make plays. You know, right. He had touchdown scoring from wide receiver, from quarterback. Um, you know, he's a really just talent we have. Lucky to have him, too. You guys obviously have gotten quite a bit of publicity about this. I know I've seen this story on my social media feed so many times from so many different publications. It's probably too soon to know, you know, what kind of effect this will have on getting your program's name out there. Uh, Obviously, you are well known in your community, right? The community that you are uh, recruiting from. But do you think that this might have some positive impacts on who you're able to get and who you're able to convince to come to Gallaudet to play football in the future? This, oh, I would say this last week, when Thursday morning we're on Good Morning America, the next hour after that, it just became a just madness, crazy people texting. I found, I would say probably another like 12 recruits, people who didn't know about Gouda University mm-hmm. until they saw us on TV. And so it's so much of a positive. Anytime we can have a national, you know, just spotlight, it helps so much. 
You know, it's just such a good recruiting tool. I email 27,000 head football coaches every year and ask them if they have any deaf and hard of hearing players. Most of the time, people don't even know Gallaudet is a school for the deaf and hard of hearing. You know, so this helps so much. And there's so many deaf and hard of hearing players. I've received probably 15 emails, text messages from parents who have deaf and hard of hearing kids that play high school football. Yeah. It, this changes the game for them. You know, for us, we communicate in ASL. It's kind of easy. This helps us. But for a kid who is the only deaf kid on the team in a right. hearing school, they finally give an opportunity to show what they can do. Sometimes deaf kids on hearing teams are forced to play defense because it's easier to communicate. See, ball, eat, ball, go. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so it, it's going to be crazy. It's not, it's not stopping here. You know, our official commercial, we did a uh, commercial shoot two weeks ago on our bye week. Um, that will that will air on Saturday. Okay. And they're going to introduce it on college game day. Wow. So it's just another opportunity for Gallaudet to show, like, you know, the world who we are again. So it's, it's, it's really cool. Greg, there's another three and a half minutes or so of this conversation that people can find on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page. We'll post it to Twitter where we'll have the full 13-minute conversation. I just wanted to make sure that this conversation was accessible to the Gallaudet community and the deaf community. So I made sure that we recorded video and Chuck was kind enough to sign as he was talking in order to help with the accessibility as well. But in summary, we also talked about how this technology might get codified into the NSA's playing rules. And the short answer is this hasn't gotten that far yet. No, it hasn't. And I hope it gets some serious attention by the NCAA because uh, it's really exciting technology and I think really good for not just Gallaudet, but for the game. You know, this is obviously a really exciting time for Gallaudet. Uh, this is a tremendous opportunity to leverage technology to make football accessible, not just for deaf and hard of hearing players, but also to level the playing field for Gallaudet. Coaches being limited to certain areas of the field that make communicating with ASL difficult. That puts Gallaudet at a distinct competitive disadvantage. We know that the huddle was invented by Gallaudet in 1894. That innovation became ubiquitous across not only football, but in most sports, basketball, baseball, pretty much any team sport huddles somewhere at some time. So, you know, I'm really excited about this technology and how it might be used to expand into the greater football community. We've seen communication devices become standardized in baseball. And I could see an evolution of this technology where we use it widely across football as a more effective way to communicate plays, uh, more effective than giant poster boards with pictures of Iron Man, the Spice Girls, a train caboose, and Lionel Messi's head. I'm not sure what play combines Iron Man, the Spice Girls, a train caboose, and Messi's head, but I look forward to seeing it. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, Greg, that there aren't any hurdles put into place for this to be approved and put into the NCAA's playing rules. I was also very interested to hear Coach Goldstein talk about, you know, obviously we've known and it makes sense that within the deaf community, Gallaudet is pretty well known, right? But there are however many emails he sent out to coaches on an annual basis because there are so many other places where there might be one player who's deaf or hard of hearing on a high school football roster who might be interested in participating in an experience that's a little more tailored to them at the college level. That is a piece that even though I've spent time at Gallaudet in my past, that had not really been on my radar. Yeah. I think it's a really intriguing possibility for players that want to continue their careers with the kinds of tools that makes the game more accessible, more competitive for them. And to be part of something that's innovative and innovating the game, I think is really enticing as well. I just think having a tablet on the sidelines is a good idea. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And I feel like I could repeat my game ball from last week. And I'll get pretty close. I will stay with UW Lacrosse this week. And I give my game ball to Michael Stack. That's for his three field goals, including ones of 44 and 51 yards, including the 51 yarder on the final play of the game. Michael Stack, UW Lacrosse kicker, my game ball. Here's what it sounded like. 
on the UW Lacrosse broadcast that game-winning field goal. 51 yards for Michael Stack, the sophomore. Everybody on their feet as the Eagles try to knock off the number three team in the land. Stack lines it up. Here's the snap. Hold. Kick on the way to the uprights. It is good. They got it. 51 yards. And the streak is over. The game is over. Oh, my God. They scream onto the field. And UWL has knocked off the Warhawks for the first time since 2004. Michael Stack. Ithaca used a big defensive effort to notch their first Liberty League win at RPI, and that defensive effort was led by junior defensive back Jake Connolly. Connolly led the Bombers' defense with 11 tackles. He added a sack and intercepted RPI quarterback Jake Kazanowski twice, once inside the Ithaca 10-yard line to extinguish a scoring threat for his team-leading tackling effort and being responsible for two of Ithaca's three turnovers. Jake Connolly gets my game ball. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. I feel like I could repeat my stat of the week as well, as North Central had another huge offensive performance, averaging 14.2 yards per snap against Carroll. Not my stat, though. I'm going to stay with some big offensive numbers in the state of Illinois, though, if that helps. And I'm going to Illinois College, where wide receiver Colin Brunstein has had Five 100-yard receiving games in five games this season. No, not my stat. That's obviously happened in lots of places. The stat, however, is him just going off for 301 yards on seven catches and scoring three touchdowns for the Blue Boys this week in a 41-20 win at the University of Chicago. Brunstein caught touchdown passes of 85, 87, and 66 yards, and the rest of his catches for 31, 7, and 21. Someone check my math. But I think that does add up to 301 yards, and it's my stat of the week. Big, big receiving day in the Chicagoland area. Brunstein and D'Angelo Hardy went off too. On Saturday, Pat, Hope defeated Albion by a score of 14 to 6 behind a stellar defensive effort from the Flying Dutchman. Hope limited Albion to a season low 274 yards of offense, which is not my stat. The Flying Dutchman stopped all three Albion fourth down attempts in the fourth quarter, which is also not my stat. No, Pat, in this game, Albion's six points came from just a pair of field goals, meaning that Albion did not score an offensive touchdown. Saturday in Holland, Michigan, is the first time that Albion's offense was kept out of the end zone in exactly 100 games dating back to a 66-0 loss to Wheaton in 2013, and that is my stat of the week. I'm a real wild one. Time to go region by region, and in region one we ask, who's having fun in the one? And Springfield is having fun in the one, Greg. First off, conference play in the new Mac has been fun for Springfield for basically the entire time they've been in the league. The Pride are 32-4 and four in league play since the new Mac started football in 2017. The Pride did get thoroughly handled by Union back in week three, but otherwise, they're off to their running best. But the one thing I want to do is shout out that we noticed that Christian Hutra, you know, first team D3Football.com All-American kicker on our preseason team this year, kicked a 51-yard field goal this week as well. That's not all. We also got a nice tip in the comments. Yeah, yeah, something nice and useful in comments on a story. And I went and checked it out. Springfield actually sent Hutra out there to kick a 56-yard field goal. So this was at MIT on Saturday. There was a little bit of a tailwind, but not nearly as much as when I was at MIT a couple weeks ago. MIT ends up jumping off sides on this snap from the 39-yard line. So Hutcher gets to kick from five yards closer in, and Greg, he buries this ball at another 10 yards of distance easy. I would say we also noticed Will Goodman of the University of Chicago hitting from 50 this week and from 55 a few weeks ago. We see what D3 kickers are doing out there. And that's fun, whether it's in the five or the one or anywhere else. Well, it would have been good from 61, you say? I think so. Always good to know where it would have been good from. Middlebury Pat is having fun in the one as they improved their record to three and one in the NESCAC following a 12 to 10 win at Williams. The Panthers survived six turnovers in this game and less than 18 minutes of total possession to scratch out a win. The decisive play came with 56 seconds left when Cole Kennan found Patrick Jamin with a 16-yard touchdown pass. 
Middlebury stays on the road next week when they go to NESCAC Powerhouse Trinity. Been a tough season for Williams so far. They are one and three, 12 to 10 loss. So you lose 12 to 10, even though you've been given the ball six extra times. Yeah, difficult day. I don't know if weather had a lot to do. There's a lot of weather in the Northeast, a lot of rain and wind. It looked like in a lot of games that I was watching. Um, but still, yeah, tough, tough start for Williams. Good start for Trinity. Uh, NESCAC is fun to watch, actually. Pat, who's pulling through in the two? Well, Rowan hasn't had the best start to this season, but there's no better way to move past some of those bad memories than to have a memorable game against an arch rival. And for Rowan, that opportunity came Saturday afternoon at the College in New Jersey. Down 7-3, to three, Rowan gets the ball back at the 20, out of timeouts with a minute 37 left after the Lions punt goes into the end zone. And Nate Myers goes to work out of the hurry-up. He's the quarterback. He hits Marlon Boston for a couple of gains, hits Shane Martin for 12 yards. Myers goes and scrambles for 9 yards and just gets out of bounds on his own sideline with 28 seconds left. It's really quite a good, just short of two-minute drill, Greg. Myers finds Shane Martin for 4 yards on the third and one. They spike to stop the clock. Then Myers hits Andrew Spinello over the middle dangerously, but he makes the catch and has just enough yardage for the first down that stops the clock. And we sit at the 30-yard line with eight seconds left, and we'll pass you off here to the TCNJ broadcast with the call. Eight seconds to go here. Mayers looking left, throws one up, end zone. And Rowan caught it in the end zone for a walk-off touchdown. Profs stun the Lions once again. And Martin makes the play at the end of the game. I am in utter shock. All right, so you don't see it on their broadcast, and the broadcaster doesn't really describe it here. But thanks to Frank Rossi for chasing down Rowan's coaching video. This shows the ball being batted up in the air, not down. You're supposed to bat down. It gets deflected again, and then it lands in Shane Martin's arms. Meanwhile, it's the second year in a row in which Rowan has beaten TCNJ on the last play of the game as well, and that is pulling through in the two. Certainly is, Pat. And also in the two, nobody circles the Conestoga wagons like the Dickinson Red Devils. For the second straight week, Dickinson wins in walk-off fashion. Last week, we heard Dickinson beat rival Franklin and Marshall on the last play of regulation. This week, it was Dickinson scoring a touchdown on their overtime possession to beat Christopher Newport in non-conference action. After tying the game with just 90 seconds left in regulation, Dickinson held the captains to a field goal in the first half of the overtime session. On Dickinson's possession, Presley Egbers connects with Bobby Markey for a 14-yard touchdown pass and the win. Dickinson... Four and one on the season. Great season for the Red Devils so far. Greg, what's the key in the three? Huntingdon has more often than not held the key to the USA South Conference, but the Hawks have lost leverage in the USA South title chase after Bellhaven broke through with a 29-3 win over Huntingdon. The Blazers got a huge offensive day from running back Colby Blunt and a defensive effort that limited a usually potent Huntington offense to just 202 yards. I did say Bellhaven broke through, and this is indeed a breakthrough win for the Blazers. This is a team that we thought would compete for the USA South Championship pretty quickly after winning seven games in their final full ASC campaign in 2021. Mm -hmm. After the game, head coach Blaine McCorkle called it the biggest win in program history so far. The Blazers, they're 5 0 for the first time in program history, and they're in the driver's seat now in the USA South. They've got a difficult trip to Maryville, and they've got a game left with Brevard, who is also undefeated in conference play, but Bellhaven took a huge step forward on Saturday. Huge step indeed, and by the way, for you bracketology types, Bellhaven is within 500 miles of UMHB, but not within 500 miles of Trinity. Also key to the three is Randolph-Macon, so is Bridgewater, so is Washington and Lee. They are all 2-0 right now in ODAC play. Bridgewater won on Saturday up at Shenandoah, their I-81 rival, and they host Randolph-Macon this week in a 2 p.m. Eastern kickoff. And Randolph-Macon hasn't exactly played anyone this season, and we know Bridgewater is not really on the same playing field as Susquehanna, or at least they were not in week one. So we will see if Randolph-Macon looks similarly dominant. The top 25 poll suggests they should be. Greg, when I say Bellhaven is within 500 miles of UMHB, 
this could be UMHB going to Bellhaven in the first round, right? It very well could be. Uh, yeah, if Bellhaven goes 10 and 0, or maybe even 9 and 1, it could be a situation where UMHB goes to Bellhaven. Would not be the first time UMHB played at Bellhaven. They were conference rivals not long ago. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of people in the state of Texas really excited about the possibility of Bellhaven being somebody that they can pair up with instead of what a lot of people assume would be a Mary Harden Baylor Trinity rematch. Pat, what's the score in the four? Sons, what the four by four's for? Well, at Marietta, Greg, the score in the four was a quite intriguing 31 to 28 win for John Carroll. Baldwin Wallace is significantly down this year. Heidelberg wasn't competitive earlier this season against John Carroll. And it is good to see another program step up and be able to challenge for, you know, if nothing else, maybe a spot in the regional rankings at the end of the season. Marietta spotted JCU 21 points, but came back and had the ball at midfield down three at the end before a bit of a derailment on offense in the closing seconds. But Andy Waddle's team has been more than competitive this season. We last talked with Coach Waddle in Podcast 209, so go scroll way back in your feed sometime to learn a little bit more about the Pioneers and their two-tone gray stadium turf at Don Drum Stadium. I don't remember the same uproar over Marietta's turf when that went down. Yeah, good point. I mean, it's just, it's not black. The thing that is so interesting to me when I watch a Marietta game, and that's still, you know, now five or so years later, is I watch this game and I feel like I'm watching some old newsreel footage because so much of the screen is in black and white. And then you've got, you know, colors of whatever's being worn on the field kind of pops up a little bit, but it's very interesting. And I, I like watching it. Pat 41 to three was the score in Mount Union's week six victory over Heidelberg. Heidelberg played without their veteran quarterback, Drew Sims, this weekend. But even so, the student princes were limited to just 106 yards of offense and just seven total rush yards. The Purple Raiders rolled up seven sacks of Heidelberg quarterbacks, and they had 14 tackles for loss. Rossi Moore had two of those sacks and five of those tackles for loss to lead the way. For as statistically wild as North Central has been offensively, Mount Union's defense has been just as good. So if you're triangulating a a North Central Mount Union game sometime later this season, maybe in Salem, maybe a week or two earlier, that appears to be about as elite an offense versus defense matchup as you can draw. I'm glad you bring up this game too. A good opportunity for a score correction. We had that score listed on our site for a while on Saturday as 27 to three, which is the end of the third quarter score. We mentioned it earlier in the podcast that new in-game stats software seems to cycle through from reading zero, zero, zero in the third to reading zero, zero, zero in the fourth before it resets to 15 minutes in the fourth. So if you look at those live stats at the wrong time, you might think the game was over. And that's what we did. Who's starting to thrive in the five, Pat? Well, I would say North Park is starting to thrive in the five, Greg. We talked about this earlier in the season, and the Vikings continue to perform well. On Saturday, North Park got two defensive touchdowns, and they blocked an extra point as they defeated Carthage 35-20. to That means North Park is now 3-2, and two, and for North Park, 3-2 and two is a pretty big deal. The Vikings haven't won four games in 30 seasons since Tim Rux coached the team back in 1993. North Park has at least one quite winnable game on its uh, schedule of remaining contests, and five wins would be their first five-win season since 1968. Congratulations to North Park so far. Great first half of the season for those guys. Also having a great first half is Aurora. They've been thriving in the five, and they just keep getting better. This week, the Spartans rolled to a 91-0 win at Concordia, Chicago. A couple of weeks ago for Around the Nation, Don Beebe. Don Beebe! Told me that their game against Benedictine Don Beebe. Don Beebe caught him from behind. Was the best game he's seen Aurora play in his tenure. They may have done two better since that conversation. I currently have Aurora ranked 19th on my ballot, Pat, and I am very seriously questioning if I have the Spartans way, way too low. Really hard to tell from a game against Concordia Chicago, right? I didn't know what to make out of that, if anything. But I, I get what you're saying, and I look forward to seeing when they... You know, for example, they play St. Norbert this upcoming Saturday. That'll be a little bit more of a test. We'll see how that goes. 
Greg, who's got something to fix in the six? One week ago, Claremont Mudscripts and Redlands looked like fairly clear favorites in their Skyac divisions, but they both have things to fix after late Saturday results saw both of those teams take losses. Claremont Mudscripts fell behind 20 to 0 at Chapman. They could not recover, ultimately falling 20 to 17, while Redlands fell to Pomona Pitzer 10 to 9 at Redlands. Redlands lost quarterback Tyler Tremaine late in their game, and we'll see if he has to miss any extended period of time. And for CMS, Justin Edwards was held to just 51 yards rushing, and he has not quite matched his same production level for the last two seasons. So now after two weeks of Skyac play, the lone undefeated team left is... Oh yeah, this is going to be good. As we all expected, Cal Lutheran. These Skyac divisional races are going to be wild. They're doing double round robins with teams in their division, and... I hope there are robust tiebreakers involved here because it looks like it's headed that way. Raise your hand if you had unbeaten in conference play Cal Lutheran on your bingo card for 2023. We'll wait. Yeah, no argument here, right? And a a divisional race with just three teams is not something we've really had the chance to observe previously anyway. Something else to fix in the six might be at St. John's in terms of the number of penalties the Johnnies are racking up this year. On Saturday, it was 13 penalties for 103 yards against Concordia Moorhead. Against Augsburg the week before, it was 10 penalties for 83 yards. This has been a tough couple of weeks after a really disciplined start of the season for St. John's. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. You know how it goes. We throw the signal out on X when we are looking to take questions for this podcast and answering the call this week is coach Cantor. That's at Mike Cantor three Cantor with a K asking should a quality loss like Whitewater had hold more weight than a blowout win versus lesser competition. Yes. And I'll let Greg elaborate. It certainly can win percentage is a primary criteria. So that's where your win against a, a blowout team comes into play. But strength of schedule is also a primary criteria. So playing quality games in the WIAC, every game is going to be a good game that's going to boost your strength of schedule. Um, but certainly results against ranked opponents where that seems like this is going to land as well is going to be beneficial for Whitewater. So, you know, should it hold more weight? I don't think that we weigh the different criteria, at least not officially. Uh, every committee member has their own interpretation of which primary criteria mean more to them, but certainly quality losses. I, if we're calling this, that can certainly help um, more than say had whitewater won a game 91 to zero against Concordia, for example. I'm glad that we asked you this question because in my brain, I was only ascribing it to the top 25. And of course you raise a very good point about, you know, how it might rack up in the NCAA selection criteria. I think in terms of top 25, you learn more about a team probably from a game such as this, especially when you're talking about Whitewater that has had a couple of really big and important wins against ranked teams so far this season. I think this, you know, continues to cement the things that we already know about Whitewater. Whitewater's pretty good. And do you learn the same from... You know, Aurora beating Concordia, Chicago, 91 nothing, or Susquehanna beating Keystone, 69 nothing. I don't know that we do. And obviously, you know, lacrosse with the win against Whitewater, leapfrogs Susquehanna and a bunch of other teams in the rankings. So Susquehanna drops a spot, even though that they won big because somebody else had a much better week. I think that in the right circumstances, not all the time, but in the right circumstances, a quality loss like Whitewater's definitely holds more weight to a top 25 voter than any 91 to nothing win, unless you're beating another ranked team, 91 to nothing. And with the top 25, Pat, I think you can see how our voters have treated those kinds of situations. We saw Harden Simmons fall a lot when they lost to an unranked at the time Endicott team, Wisconsin Whitewater did not fall very far in our poll this week after losing to Wisconsin lacrosse. So I think, our, I think our voters do a good job of assessing the the quality loss and uh, taking care of teams uh, that that have performed well against other highly ranked teams. 
I think too, there is a small amount of margin of defeat or margin of victory in this case also, right? I mean, Harden Simmons lost to Endicott by 27 points and the lacrosse whitewater game was a three point game, one point game, two point game, four point game, six point game. I'm not sure that the voters really do draw or should draw any lines between those various wins, but lost by a field goal versus a loss by four scores. There's definitely a difference there. The voters can certainly learn from that and use that information to help them construct a poll. Mike, thanks for the question. The rest of you can also ask us questions all week on Twitter. Questions that are asked in a professional manner will probably get answered the same way. Questions that are asked at us snarkily might get answered snarkily. You've been warned. Moving ahead to week seven. Boy, folks, things are getting serious. It's time for games to watch. My game to watch for week seven is what else? Number seven, UW-Whitewater at number four, UW-River Falls. This is the reason why I didn't pick the Whitewater lacrosse game last week as my game to watch. And yeah, obviously I, I overthink these things sometimes because I didn't want to pick a Whitewater game two weeks in a row. I picked John Carroll at Marietta. That was a pretty good game as well, but nothing compared to the game at Whitewater. And if Whitewater had trouble containing Kaiser Heltebrand, the do-everything quarterback slash all-purpose back for UW lacrosse, They'll definitely have to apply whatever they learn in breaking down the video to Saturday's game against quarterback Caleb Blaha. Is a guy who's the quarterback for River Falls. He got a hard-running 99 yards on 24 carries on Saturday. This is going to be the biggest football game at River Falls and coming up on 30 years, and perhaps the biggest game overall for the program since a 1995 quarterfinal loss at UW Lacrosse. Probably going to be. An excellent game because Pat Coleman is going to be there. <laughs> does seem how that works out, doesn't it? Pat, my game to watch this week is going to be Union at number 15, Ithaca. Much like we saw in the pack with Grove City, Ithaca is running through their top Liberty League rivals in back-to-back-to-back weeks. We call this the Amansky. Fred McGriff gives this schedule his full endorsement, Greg. Ithaca has taken care of Hobart and RPI. If they can hold serve at Butterfield Stadium against Union... Ithaca will have head-to-head advantages over their chief rivals and in all likelihood would be able to lose twice to Rochester, St. Lawrence, and Buffalo State in order to uh, then lose the Liberty League AQ. So pretty secure if they can win this week against Union. Ithaca, believe it or not, Pat, they have played the strongest schedule so far this year according to the NCAA's math. Union's schedule has not been nearly as strong, but they've been impressive. This matchup hasn't been favorable for Union. They've lost 12 of the last 13 in the series, but that lone win did come at Ithaca in 2019. It's my understanding that there would be no math. Look at that. Ithaca, NCA SOS 820, UW-Whitewater 759, St. John's, UW-Lacrosse, Rochester, because they played a strong schedule, even if they haven't necessarily succeeded against it. You can find these numbers, the ones that... uh, are supposed to mirror what the NCAA uses by going to the news menu on d3football.com and clicking strength of schedule. It's been pointing to the 2022 numbers up until today, and it's about time we start rolling those 23 numbers out there for sure. Other games this week, Platteville hosts number six, UW Lacrosse. Carlton is at St. John's in a battle of MIAC Northwoods division unbeatens. Bridgewater hosts number 11, Randolph-Macon, as previously mentioned. 16th ranked Aurora goes to St. Norbert. Hope hosts... Number 19, Alma. 23rd ranked Grove City is at Allegheny. Rowan hosts Christopher Newport. Bethel goes to Augsburg. Wesleyan is at Tufts, along with nearly 100 other Division Three football games on Saturday. Lacrosse on the road to Platteville. That's a tough comeback, right? I was just remembering that game two years ago and how it came down at the end. We are going on the spot. Pat, it is Major League Baseball playoff season, as you might be aware. I'm currently ignoring the alerts on my phone, but I know the Twins are leading the Astros here in Game 2, 3-0 at the end of the fourth. Very exciting. So, Pat, I have come up with a game that I like to call Game 7. All right. And I'm going to give you three games featuring teams that are 3-3 three and three on their on their regular season so far. And I want you to tell me which of these teams are going to win 
their game seven. I like it. I like any baseball reference on this podcast, as everybody well knows, and I like this one as well. We have Alfred State is three and three. They are hosting Anna Maria. Denison is three and three. They are hosting Wabash and Trine. Three and three. They are hosting all of that. All of these teams apparently with the game seven home field advantage. Looking at Alfred State, three and three, right? Two of those three wins are against Hilbert and Lyon. So that's a that gives me immediate pause in that game. You look at Anna Maria, of course, and they've surrendered 93 points to Coast Guard. They surrendered 50 points to Husson. I think uh, Alfred State is going to lose game seven to the folks that are pseudo sort of from the Boston area in Anna Maria. Soon to be Mascac Anna Maria. Soon to be Mascac Anna Maria. Next game, Denison against Wabash. This requires very little discussion. Denison loses in game seven. Wabash improves to five and one. And then we have Trine and Olivet. I really thought that we wouldn't have gotten to this point in the season and Trine would have been three and three. If you go back and look at how Trine began the season, the Thunder from down under the Michigan-Indiana state line with a 61-0 win against Anderson, 58-43 against Franklin, 34-14 against Adrian, then getting boat raced by Alma, losing by two to Rose Holman, losing by 24 to Hanover. This is at home versus Olivet. And of course, Olivet on the season, the Comets 3-2 and two with a win against Alfred State, a win against Franklin. I am seeing too many interconnected webs here. The red string across the board here behind me is getting way too difficult for me to really do a very logical job with. There is no Pepe Sylvia. The man does not exist, okay? So I decided, oh, buddy, I got to dig a little deeper. There's no Pepe Sylvia. You got to be kidding me. I got boxes full of Pepe. So I'm going to take Trine to win game seven and improve to four and three on the season. There you go. That is Alfred State and Denison losing game seven and falling to three and four on the season, trying winning game seven to go to four and three. I mean, it's really difficult to have your ace lined up to pitch three games in a series on short rest like that. I get it. My game for you this week, Greg, is called Run to 100. Did you watch The Price is Right like everybody else, maybe when you were homesick as a kid? I believe it's mandatory. It's mandatory, you're right. They got the little guy climbing up the side of the of the mountain, right? I want you to pick as many scores as you want, as many teams to score points, as long as you can keep the total of points under 100. So the number of points that they score this weekend, add them all together, keep it under 100. You can name as many games as you want. Or if you wanted to take Aurora, you could name just one. <laughs> Totals. For a single team, and I'm trying to get as close to 100 without going over. Definitely, prices right rules. It makes sense. That's right. All right. So we're gonna look through very carefully. Could pick some big spender. You want to use two thirds of it on North Central right out of the gate. This does feel, it feels like, like something where I should go for something, get a big chunk of it early. So I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Cortland as my first team. Cortland is playing at home against Alfred. They are. And I feel like Cortland is going to be around half a hundred. All right. And then I'm going to go with Randolph Macon at Bridgewater. I think Randolph Macon's 50 point streak ends this week. They're going to be somewhere between 35 and 42, which is going to get me close. It's going to give me around 90. All right. Do you want to throw in any shutouts or something? Throw in capital just for funsies? No, we won't do capital, but I am going to go. We're going to go with, I am going to go with Western New England. Western New England is going to give me that last little bit that I need to get close to a hundred. So there we go. Cortland, Randolph, Macon, Western new England. And if those three keep you under 100, you'll win our prize, which is show him what he's won. I got nothing. Thanks. Drew. 
Last week, I challenged Greg in a game called Of Mascots and Men to pick three winners in games where teams would win a game which their mascots would have lost. For example, if you were in the ever bigger 10, this would be picking Ohio State over Michigan, even though an actual Buckeye would never defeat a real-life Wolverine. So with that in mind, Greg picked Howard Payne, Yellow Jackets, over the Tigers of East Texas Baptist, and he was correct. HPU won that game 28-14. to He picked Grove City. Those are Wolverines as well. They defeated Geneva, the Golden Tornadoes, even though there's no way a Wolverine would win in a direct battle with a weather event of that type. Grove City won 48-21. to And we are not talking about the X-Men. We are talking about actual Wolverine animals. And then Greg also picked the Muskies of Lakeland over the Warriors of Wisconsin Lutheran. But unfortunately, the real-life Warriors came through winning 34 to 14 again a two out of three ain't bad week for greg thomas we'll take it big win for wisconsin luther and then you did that one let's see last weekend on the spot i picked pat to pick one team in the others receiving votes pool of the top 25 balloting to win and get into the top 25 this week last week's top 25 teams were not ready to play that particular <laughs> game and nobody lost yes. so Pat picked UW Oshkosh to be the team to move in. And while Oshkosh did win a wild game against Wisconsin Stout, the Titans actually lost a handful of points and they remain just on the outside looking in. To be fair, Pat did say last week he didn't think anybody was going to move out. So uh, we forced him forced him into a pick, wouldn't let him do none in this particular game. There's another game I've allowed to pick none in. Nobody lost, Pat. Nothing you can do about no, that. No, indeed. Uh, in terms of quick hits, in terms of top 25 upsets, Greg, you, Frank, and Logan all correctly picked Ithaca to be on upset alert. And of course, the Bombers won in overtime. So alert, yes, loss, no. Riley picked John Carroll and the Blue Streak survived that turf at Marietta. Nobody in the top 25 was upset by an unranked team. And I will take the point for saying none. And you get the point for saying none. Last week, or at least in week uh, week five, we had eight runners who rushed for over 200 yards and we needed to pick one of those eight to rush for the most in week six. Uh, the steam was really on Franklin's Garrett Cora to run wild against Anderson, but it was actually bell Haven's Colby blunt who went back to back 200 yard games with 225 yards in the blazers win over Huntingdon. No points for the panel on that one. I asked the panel to pick two previously undefeated teams that would lose this week. Utica was a nearly unanimous choice, and the Pioneers did indeed fall at Cortland pretty decisively. Greg, Ryan, Frank, and Logan all picked Bell Haven to lose, which they did not. Pat's pair of Utica and RPI is a winner, as is Riley's pair of Utica and Albion. Riley is actually doing quite well in quick hits this season. Riley is destroying quick hits. We need to ask more Mary Harden-Baylor questions, I guess. Try to uh, draw him off sides or something. I might need to. Uh, and the last question in quick hits this week, I asked the panel to pick the closest game in the Mayak, and it was the battle for the goat and Carlton's dramatic 33 to 31 win over St. Olaf, which provided the most and really the only drama in the Mayak on Saturday. Greg, Frank, Logan, and Riley all picked that one correctly. That was as close as it gets. Hard to get much closer. That was one on a field goal with 23 seconds left. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 337, released on October 9th, 2023. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our coverage all season. We're very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers. And you can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. And if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alum about this show. Give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined. That is still a thing that helps other people find the show. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on X. Use that D3FB hashtag. More people see it when you do. Isn't that what you want? I tweet from at D3Football on X. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? You can join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at d3boards.com. You can follow d3football.com on Facebook as well. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of DJ Mentos' tracks as well. You can find them at 
DJMentos.com, as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Chuck Goldstein. Thanks to Gallaudet Sports Information Director Sam Atkinson for their help with the production of this particular edition of the podcast. Keith McMillan was the OG host and the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com. We're super grateful for that, but even more so for Greg stepping in now four seasons as not only the columnist, but co-host of this podcast. Greg, we had two other people who wrote Around the Nation in the interim. They did not co-host the show. You are co-hosting the show. I am. I just really, unfortunately for Ryan and Adam, he'd like to do the podcast still. You made it to the show. Speaking of the show, twins are up to 5-0. I can't watch now. If I haven't been watching all along, I can't just jump in the middle. It does not work for me that way. I seem to be bad luck whenever I turn on the TV in the middle of one of my team's games. But I was very lucky to be in the stadium uh, back on Tuesday for the first game of the Wild Card Series. They can't stop winning playoff games now. Well, they did on Saturday, but yeah, I was too busy to watch. I had uh, too many other things going on, some football stuff. But I also did not watch playoff baseball on Saturday. <laughs> something, something, Clayton Kershaw, my man. What the heck? I know you are not a Dodgers fan. I assume by the Giants hat that you wear that you can't possibly be a Dodgers fan. I don't think you'd be allowed to wear a Giants hat if you were a Dodgers fan. I was really disappointed to see playoff Kershaw make an appearance. Thank you, Thank you so much, everybody.